I want you to come with me to Genesis chapter 2. And we'll read a few verses together from Genesis, the second chapter. Uh, by the way, your cell group sheet is at the back. Uh, we didn't have one for a couple of weeks for various reasons, but uh, that's active again. Uh, so you can pick one up as you uh, leave this morning. And it will uh, let you know about some of the meetings that are coming ahead. Next Sunday evening, I should say, in case I forget, that uh, little Doreen Moore, that fiery little woman of prayer, uh, she's coming to, to share with us next Sunday night. And then the following Sunday morning uh, is Vine Song from South Africa. I do not miss that. In fact, I said to Jillian this morning that we will cancel the Sunday school on that morning so that uh, the Sunday school teachers and even the children will get an opportunity to hear this uh, tremendous group. And they will lead the worship right from the very beginning of the service. They'll lead the worship and then they'll go into uh, singing their songs. So it's going to be a great morning. All right, so Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 and following. Then the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may free to eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And out of the ground God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. Whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, and the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Then chapter 3, verse 20. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, or life, or life giver, because she was the mother of all living. He called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Amen. I want to begin today to do a series of on woman. And over these next few weeks, uh, I shall explore and highlight some truly remarkable and notable women uh, that we find in Scripture. As women, you are a marvelous creation of God. Amen? You are endowed with incredible and unique abilities. Can you say amen? both spiritually, physically, emotionally, intellectually, in every way. God has made you as woman in shape and form highly attractive and desirable to man. Can you say amen? <laughs> well, that was a kind of a weak amen. <laughs> and it was even weaker from the men. He has graced you with tremendous intelligence and charm 
great emotional strength and an innate instinct and intuition. Women are more intuitive than men. Women can pick up and sense and feel a lot more acutely than men can. Isn't that so? For goodness sakes. This is going to be a struggle getting through this this morning. Am I doing all right so far? All right. (laughs) Women have made a a really a tremendous, incredible contribution to the kingdom of God in general and to the church of Christ in particular. In fact, the church would be greatly diminished, terribly depleted if it was not for the majority of women that make up the church of Jesus Christ on the earth. And it is the majority that are women. Now, in spite of all the rantings and ravings of strident feminists, secular authors and speakers that Christianity wants to set women back centuries. It's not true because the Bible upholds, especially in the Bible, against a backdrop of paganism. It's the Bible that upholds the dignity and the beauty and the worth and the loveliness and the purity of woman. So therefore, it's not surprising that Scripture has much to say about woman. And even in in modern times, it's the Bible that upholds and honors woman against a modern backdrop where women are are simply sexualized and exploited, uh, where women are are made to feel somehow that things like marriage uh, and motherhood and raising children uh, and keeping home uh, and being truly feminine and modest, that, that those things are, are, are something that from past generations that has no place in the 21st century. And that you woman, all you need to be is strident. Uh, and you know, and, and we see that played out today, particularly in young women. Uh, we see all the binge drinking culture where the young women are worse than the young men today. Uh, and that's fed into society today that to be really cool and to be a real woman, then you've got to be strident and you've got to be above men and all of this stuff. And it's really not doing much for women at all, actually, because they're losing their modesty and dignity. And so the talk today is for women to be freed from the shackles of Christianity that supposedly is man-centered and man-dominated and man-made even. Well, I hope that throughout this series that you will see that God does delight in using the wonderful gifts that woman has possessed that he has put within every woman and that you will see that their wisdom and their courage their grace and their humility and their wonderful ability to lead and to bear responsibility and their faith and their faithfulness that throughout scripture that God highlights this and I believe that we will be inspired and challenged and enlightened whenever we see how God honors that and how that Woman has shaped history. You know, think of Esther, the beautiful queen, and how that through her position of great influence within that pagan palace, 
that she was able to save a whole nation from destruction. Think of Deborah, the courageous woman of great ability who was able to be a judge in Israel that God raised up. Think of a businesswoman like Lydia, the seller of purple. Uh, Think of that old prayer warrior and prophetess like Anna, who right up to enter 80s never ceased day and night to pray to God and to believe that Messiah would come and actually saw that as a consolation. Think of the industrious and virtuous woman of Proverbs 31, and that's one that we will come to later on in our study that we'll make mention of. Tremendous chapter. Think of the Marys in the New Testament, three in particular. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary of Bethany. Mary of Magdala. And there's many, many more uh, that we could speak about. Think of the smart and savvy Abigail, who through her humility and cleverness, she actually got David, prevented David from committing what would have been a terrible, terrible uh, blot on his record. Uh, But she was very wise and married to a very ugly, brutal husband. Uh, But she was a good woman. And so there are many, many more that we could speak of and that were strong and powerful, but yet humble and gracious. By the way, I, I, I may not speak in all of those I have mentioned, and I may speak in ones that I haven't mentioned, but I just threw those out there just to give you some idea, because there's lots throughout Scripture. And so very obviously today, as this is the first one, uh, we're better to start than with Eve, the mother of all living. God made man from the dust of the earth, breathed into his nostrils the bread of life, and he became a living soul. And God placed Adam in this beautiful paradise called Eden. And remember up to this point, when God created Adam from the dust, remember that this, to this point was the pinnacle of God's creation. This is the best that he had made so far but he hadn't finished sure he hadn't everything up to this point God had made he declared good but when he came to humankind he called them very good and so we read there how that God saw it was not right that man should be alone John Milton from the 17th century made an observation here which I think is nice He said that loneliness is the first thing God saw that he named not good in the Old Testament. Genesis 2.18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable to him. And so God put Adam to sleep, took out one of his ribs, and from that rib he fashioned He made Eve, the mother of all living. Do you realize that this is the only creature that God ever created out of living tissue? He could have spoke her into existence. 
He could have, like the animals and like Adam, made her out of a handful of dust. But he chose to make her out of living tissue. He took extra care and attention to make such an intricate, detailed creation. And that's another great opportunity for you ladies to say, Amen. Amen. It's all right if you say amen to that. I like what John MacArthur said about this. He said, he made Adam from a handful of dust, but he made Eve from a handful of man. <laughs> because he wanted them to be one in essence. He wanted them to be one in the same. Not like any other creature. Nothing would be comparable to him other than one just like him. By the way, in the original, woman literally means man with a womb. That's what it literally means. In other words, she was one in essence. She was a physical human being. Not like the animal kingdom, not like the angelic beings, but the same essence as him. Old Matthew Henry, and I use this at weddings as many preachers do. Matthew Henry said, If man was the head, then she was the crown. A crown to her husband and the crown of the visible creation. The man was dust refined, but the woman was dust doubly refined. One removed further from the earth. Maybe that's why, and I'm generally speaking now, maybe that's why that you are generally more genteel as a creature. Amen? So, he further states that the woman was made out of the sight of Adam, not out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and close to his heart to be loved by him. Hmm. We can only imagine the beauty of Eve. She was the absolute pinnacle, the crown of all of God's creation, his final masterpiece. Her beauty must have been all surpassing. Her hair, her eye coloring, her facial expression, her shape, her form, everything about Eve was absolutely perfect, flawless, with no imperfection whatsoever. No need of any cosmetics. No photographic digital enhancement necessary. No airbrushing required. She was perfect in every way. And as soon as Adam saw her, he was immediately taken it was truly love at first sight. Now, I said that we can only imagine her beauty. And that is true because, interestingly, the Bible never describes her beauty. In fact, as you go through Scripture and you read about woman in the Bible, the Bible rarely emphasizes the woman's outer beauty but always emphasizes her inner beauty, her character, her temperament, her quality. Now, it's not that 
any woman should think there's any merit in looking dowdy and unkempt and not groomed or washed or dressed properly. Not at all. But I think that the word's emphasis is very clearly on the outer woman rather than the inner woman, isn't it? Uh, the word's emphasis is always, almost always on the outer vessel rather than the inner vessel. And, and that's why when you come to Scripture, and as believers, this is where we ought to take our lead from, not from the world, but from the book. Because God knows what's best, even though the Word tries to stand it on its head. And so, as believers, we should always prioritize our spiritual life above our physical life. But yet not, it's not to say that we shouldn't look after the physical. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We ought to, but not at the expense of our spiritual lives. And that's what the Word would want us to do. And as believers, we need to watch because we're constantly bombarded with stereotypes on TV and newspapers and magazines and movies. And we know that young people especially, young women especially, are bombarded and feel compelled to conform to the stereotypical so-called woman. And there's a great danger that as, as believers, as woman, godly woman, there's a great danger that we, that we forget and, and follow the trend slavishly uh, of fashion, even though it may be immodest. And we need to be very careful of being immodest. Uh, yeah, can I speak very plainly here? Men are attracted by what they see. They're attracted through the eye gate. And so Christian women especially should be careful of their modesty. Because I don't care who you are. You may be a Christian woman and you may be as virtuous as you can believe. But if you don't dress modestly, people's going to look at you and they're not going to think you're virtuous. And that's just the brutal truth of it. So we need to be careful that we don't slavishly just follow fashion and say, well, that's the fashion today. Well, it may be, but who designs the fashion? By and large, it's ungodly people. I'm not hearing very many amens now at this point. And by the way, that goes for men too. Do you ever notice a man, if he's into bodybuilding... Do you ever notice how he wears the tightest t-shirt he can find in the coldest weather he'd go out in? What's that about? I tell you what that's about. That's about, hey, look at me. Look at my shape. Look at my form. Now, I know a lot of women, that's a big turnoff. I know that. I've heard that many times. But to them, that's, you know. So even as Christian men, we need to be careful too that we don't slavishly just follow fashion because it's, the, it's what there is. It's what everybody does. Well, we're not everybody, are we? We're people of God. And so Eve was the perfect companion for Adam. Spiritually, intellectually, she was on par with him. In Genesis 1, had we read that, it says that both of them were to subdue and they were to have dominion over the earth. So she, she was behind in nothing. When God made a woman, he made her behind in nothing. Have you got that? 
She was no sense inferior to Adam. But her role would be different. And this is where the clash comes. This is where the rub comes. Because men especially mistakenly think because a woman's role is different that somehow she's less than him, inferior to him, he's superior to her. And that's not what the Bible teaches at all. But God made a very clear distinction in these roles since the beginning of creation. She would never ever be inferior, but she would be subordinate. There's a difference. Never be inferior, but would be subordinate. This is why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8 and 9, that man is not from woman, but woman from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for the man. Adam was the head, Eve was the helper. But not inferior. Not lacking in any quality whatsoever. But an entirely different role. How does that work? How can you be equal, but yet... Subordinate. Well, think of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All co-equal. All equally God. Son no less God than the Father. Spirit no less God than the Son. All co-equal. All one in essence. But yet, different roles. And we know that in the New Testament, because Jesus emphasized this again and again, that he, even though he was equal to the Father, but was subordinate to the Father. Even though he and the Father were one, yet he declared that again and again. But yet, even though he was co-equal to the Father, and even though in him, the Bible says, dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, yet Christ always submitted and was subordinate to the Father. In John 5 and 30, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. John 8, 29, I do always those things that please him. Everything Jesus did, he did to glorify the Father. He says, I don't even speak on my own. I speak what the Father says, what I hear. I, I, I don't make this up as I go along. I'm submitted to the Father. And he constantly emphasized that. My Apostle Paul further clarifies this submission by saying in 1 Corinthians eleven three, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. The head of woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. So even though there is equality within the Godhead, yet the Son is subordinate to the Father. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit, what did he do? What was his emphasis on earth? Glorifying Christ, wasn't it? So this in no way diminishes 
a woman in spirituality or an intellect or an essence that in no way makes her any way inferior to men, but rather gives her that God-given, God-ordained position of divinely appointed helper and companion. This world has done everything it can and the devil to try to get women not to be that. Not to have that role in life. And that's God's ordained role. How many knows that God's way is always the best way? How many also know that men function a whole lot better with the wisdom and the grace and the love and the giftedness of a godly woman. Can you say amen to that? And I can say amen to that. Now because of restrictions of time, we'll have to move on a little bit here. But we haven't time to go into all of the nitty-gritty of that and go into all the New Testament teaching on submission. All that, only other than to know that men generally, even Christian men generally, has abused that because they have totally misunderstood that and has taken that completely out of context and has used that as a, something to beat a woman over the head with. And it's totally and utterly wrong. It's not what God intended. And we often say that if a man truly is godly and lives a Christ-like life, then the whole submission thing is not a problem. But the sad truth of it is, many men are not like that. And the sad truth in Christian homes is that for, for many, many women, they have to carry the spiritual cans for the man because the man is that spiritually weak. And that's a tragedy within the church. That men spiritually will not take the lead and responsibility that God has given them. And a woman often picks that up and runs with that where she shouldn't have to. She's got her own spiritual position that's strong and right. She shouldn't have to carry the man. It should be the man carrying the woman to a large degree. should be the head. Are you still with me? But we have turned that on its head. Now... Because of time restriction, I can only briefly touch on this vital event that happened in the Garden of Eden. It truly was a defining moment, not just for Adam and Eve, but for all mankind. And we've all lived with the terrible consequences of it ever since. They know that Genesis 2 it ends with a, a picture-perfect image of Adam and Eve in this wonderful paradise of God, uh, happy and thrall with each other, loving God. I mean, just the absolute perfection, the epitome of creation. It's a wonderful picture. But as soon as you move into chapter 3, it's about to be all spoiled because that's when the devil comes. The old serpent arrives. He comes to Eve, tempting her to eat of the forbidden fruit. This was the only prohibition that God had made. It was his only, don't do it. It was his only, uh-uh, not for you. The only time, 99.9% was pure freedom without any restriction. It's just that one tiny little restriction. And that's the one the devil comes 
You hear constantly, and he still plays the same game, you hear constantly today, especially on television, you hear about comedians and, and soap operas and, and plays that they're pushing the envelope. That any sense of, of decency and morality is pushed back and they're pushing the envelope. Well, the devil's always the same. He's always pushing the envelope. That which we shouldn't do, he wants to push that continually. And so we want to read a little bit here from Genesis chapter 3, as time allows, and we're okay yet. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. I, I don't really want to get into the whole thing about what the serpent was. Was it a snake? Was it a lizard? Had it four legs? Well, you know, there's been so many ideas about what the serpent was. Was it an animal that could talk? Uh, was it a, just a situation where the, the devil entered in and had that ability? And, but a lot of conjecture over that, so that's not my purpose. I really want to concentrate on Eve. Just know it's the devil. All right, whatever what the snake was like, or was it a snake? Whatever it was, whatever the creature was, the devil used it. It says, It was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Well, you know, technically, technically, that was true. Because they couldn't eat of every tree of the garden. There was one they couldn't eat of. But that's not really the way God put it to them. In fact, in chapter 2, uh, down there in verse 15, God says, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. That's, that's emphasizing much more positively, isn't it? But there's just one. But the devil comes along, he says, uh, has God said, you may not eat of every tree? You know, he made a great big, big issue out of this. And that's what he tries to do. And so the woman said to the servant, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, let me just add this. In chapter 2, 15, before he created Eve from Adam, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden. He took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. The Lord commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. He said to the man. Read farther on down, then he created the woman. So that strongly implies that the command was given to the man. How well the man relayed that command to Eve, we'll never know. But he maybe didn't relay it as well as he ought to. He maybe didn't take his position of authority as he ought to. He maybe didn't make it as clear as he ought to. Maybe he didn't emphasize it as much as he should have. But whatever reason, and also whenever the serpent comes to Eve, notice that Adam's not around. He waited till Adam was away from Eve. And Eve was away from Adam. Then he sidles around. He gets her on her own. And she said, God said, you shall not eat of it, 
nor shall you touch it. Well, God didn't say not to touch it. And so there seems to be a little bit of confusion or misunderstanding or not getting the full picture here. And then she says, lest you die. Well, God just didn't say, lest you die. He says, you shall surely die. So he comes to the woman who, who either Adam hadn't fully told her or emphasized the danger. This is God's word. We must not do this. God has said. He told her something. But he maybe just didn't tell her quite as strongly and as clearly and as articulately as perhaps he should have. But whenever she comes, she's just not fully savvy with everything that's going on here. Then the serpent said to the woman, now he's getting bolder now. Because he knew exactly what God said. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now he's not just implying something here. He's not just being tricky about it. He's not just being subtle here. He's been just right out, ball-faced about it. You shall not surely die. In other words, well, aren't you immortal? Hasn't God made you immortal? Has any creature ever died? I mean, you're going to live forever. You'll not die. And that's the way the devil comes to mankind today. Just a great big bald-faced lie sometimes. And you know what? Man believes it. Man believes it. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. Ah, this is why God doesn't want you to have it. Because he doesn't want you to be like him. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Hmm. See, that's one of the great things that man would love to be like God. Knowing everything. Man's insatiable, unquenchable thirst for knowledge to know everything there is to know, to be your own God. Who needs God? Isn't that what science says today? We don't need God. Isn't that what the evolutionists say? We don't need God. The atheist says we don't need God. We know everything. And what we don't know, we're going to find out. We don't need God or the Bible or Christians to explain anything about creation or evolution or how to live or how to die. We know. And if we don't know, we'll find out. Just let us live a while longer. We're smart. We'll figure it out. That's the mantra today within science. So he says, you'll be like God. Well, they ended up more like him than God, didn't they? <laughs> Knowing good and evil. Well, that's true. They were going to know evil, all right. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, ah. here's the tragedy. Eve made a terrible, terrible blunder. Great, great mistake. She was the first to fall. But then she gave it to Adam. The one whom God gave the command clearly and he knowingly, deliberately 
chose of his own volition to partake of that fruit. Adam was without any excuse. None. And he ate. You know, the scriptures make some emphasis on this. Here was the man who was the head. Here was the man who should have known better. Here was the man who deliberately, consciously, without being deceived, partook of the fruit, disobeyed God. And that's why God holds Adam with the greater responsibility. Eve doesn't get off scot-free, by the way, we'll see in a moment. But the Bible clearly states that Adam had the responsibility. And this is why it says in Scripture, for instance, Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. And because, he, because Adam was not deceived because he deliberately chose to eat of the forbidden fruit, his fall, because he was the federal head of all humanity, it's a position God put him in. And because he fell, and because the responsibility was his to the largest degree because he was not deceived, that's why the ramifications upon mankind are greater. And that's why his sin became our sin. His fall became our fall because he's the federal head of humanity. This is what it says in Romans 5.19. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Adam's sin condemned all men. Now there's enough of our own sins to condemn us too, by the way. But we were born in sin and shaped in iniquity because of Adam's fall, because he was the head. And this is why God did not want Adam to partake of that and disobey him. But he chose deliberately to do so. Of course, in a sense, it was a good thing that God made him the head. And it certainly is a good thing that God charged him his sin as our sin and his condemnation as our condemnation and his fall as our fall. It's a good thing because the other half of Romans 5.19 puts it this way, even though one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, but by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Christ is the federal head of a new creation, of a new man. And so when Christ came, and this is why the Bible calls Christ the New Testament the, the, the last man, the second Adam, because he was the one who came sinless, spotless, did not break any law of God, did not break any command of God, was totally pure and totally righteous and totally holy. And then he took Adam's sin and by definition our sins upon him as the federal head of the new creation. And then he rose up again from the dead, sits at the right hand of the Father as the federal head of the new creation. And in him we are made righteous. In Adam we are made sinners, but in Christ we are made righteous. Have you got that? Huh. 
Now, even though Eve's sin was of lesser degree than Adam's, yet both were to feel the consequences of the fall and the curse that followed. So let's have a little further look then in chapter 3, because we're going to wind up in a moment or two. Verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. That had never bothered them before. But now it bothers them. They knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know how, how, how foolish sin makes us become. Imagine him knowing that God was omniscient. He was all-knowing. Imagine him knowing that God was omnipresent. He was everywhere present. That you could not possibly hide yourself from a holy God. But yet the moment he fell was the first thing he tried to do. How foolish is that? And how foolish is mankind thinking that somehow they can deny and hide from a holy God with whom they will have to do? But that's what sin does. It blinds us. It makes us foolish and make wrong, silly choices. And this was a bad choice he made. So he said, I was afraid because I was naked. No, sorry. Verse 9. Then the Lord God called Adam and said, Where are you? As if God didn't know. God knew exactly where he was. But where are you now spiritually? Where are you, Adam, before me? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid. First statement man made after the fall was, I was afraid. Sin brings awful fear. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? And then the man said, and here it starts. Here it starts. It's been going on ever since the garden, isn't it? And the man said, the woman you have give, given me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. It's that wife. It's these women. That's when it started, isn't it? Of course, he blamed God. You gave me. I didn't ask for her. I woke up one day and there she was. <laughs> Do you ever remember me, God, putting in a special prayer request that I was lonely and needed somebody? <laughs> then the Lord God said to the woman, What is it that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. Not my fault, God. See, look. I'm stupid. Yeah, I'm a woman. You know me. I mean, I'm easy. I'm so gullible. And the old servant came along and, well, you know, 
I just fell for it. It's not my fault. Well, she was deceived, but God didn't just let her off the hook with that. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Guess who he's addressing now? Not that physical creature. He's addressing the evil one, isn't he? And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's talking about Christ that was to come, isn't it? To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. And there's always God's intention that they would have children. After all, she was a man with a womb. But not like this. Not with pain and sorrow. Not with hurt. But that's part of the fall. And your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. And because it says that there, some has mistakenly believed. You see, this business of submission, that's because of the fall. It wasn't really God's intention in the first place. So we can just forget about that because we're under grace now. No, it was God's intention in the first place. But now it's going to be much, much more difficult. Now this is where the battle of the sexes comes in. Big time. Because Adam's no longer a perfect man. She's no longer a perfect woman. Because they've both sinned and the fall has happened. So now in their both imperfections, they're going to have to live with each other. They're going to have to do and deal with each other. And it's not going to be easy. How many knows there's lots of tensions? There's tensions in married life. There's tension between couples. There's tension between the sexes. Even in the workplace, there's tensions. Why is there tensions? Because we're imperfect. Because we're not the perfect man. You're not the perfect woman. We're not perfectly obeying God. She's not perfectly obeying God. There's going to be tensions. Uh, and and the, the scriptures deal with those tensions and how we can deal with those tensions, but the tensions are there. They're there because of the fall. It wasn't God's intention to be that way, but they're there. And he said to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which has commanded you not to eat, you, the ground is cursed for your sake, and in the toil you shall, in toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And everybody, every man and every woman has suffered because of that. It's a struggle to make it, isn't it? You know, I was just looking at the news the other day in Australia. I think it's Queensland. After 10 years, after 10 years of, of horror in harvest and drought, this year they were going to have their best harvest in 10 years and suddenly they have their worst case of locusts in, in, in generations. They're sentence of biblical proportions. 
And they said, if these things get wings and get out, well, they're hoppers that can try to deal with most of them. He says, once these things get wings, there's no dealing with them. They just come and look as plagues and just devour the land. And they said, there never could have been a worse time to have a plague of locusts like it is now because this has been her best harvest for years. Man is always struggling against the elements, isn't he? He's always struggling against nature, just even to eat. There's vast countries that hadn't rained for years. Wheat's going to go through the roof because of fires, heat, because of fires in Russia. Uh, cotton, yeah, listen, Primark will not be able to sell their clothes for $1.99 in a short space of time because cotton's gone through the roof because of the floods in Pakistan and India and all these places. Because we're constantly, constantly fighting the elements. That's part of the curse. Adam entered just to this world. And then, boy, I better close quickly now. And now, they're barred from paradise God puts them out of the garden of Eden puts a guard around the tree of life lest they eat that and live forever in that fallen state he bars them from it they're out of the garden and then they have children in sorrow you shall conceive boy what a heartache what a heartache Eve was about to have. She had Cain, her firstborn. Then she had Abel, her secondborn. By the way, we don't really know how many sons and daughters that Adam and Eve had. The Bible, chapter 5, said they had sons and daughters and he lived to, what, 930 or something. So there's masses of them probably. Lived a long time. But as sin has taken its hold in the world, we live a lot less. But anyway, so here's her two boys. She loves them dearly. She's the mother of all living. She gave birth to them. Adam's the dad, but mother has special feelings for her children, don't they? Hmm? Don't they? Yeah, because you gave birth to them. You carried them for nine months. You have a big stake in them. Then you know the story how that lo and behold... They bring a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's, but he wouldn't accept Cain's. Cain got angry at his brother and he killed him. Took him out of the field and murdered him. Could you imagine the anguish and the pain that, that mother must have felt? I, I, I know Adam felt it too. He was the dad, but can you imagine the pain, the anguish she must have felt? And, and realizing that a lot of it, in a way, was her own fault because she was the one who ate that fruit you imagine the guilt maybe she felt? Can you imagine what she must have felt the day that she buried her boy? And the one who murdered him, her other son, was standing at the graveside? Because sometimes we read these stories and we just gloss over it and forget. How would you feel? Would your heart not be broken? Would you not be full of sorrow and regret and fear? What's going to happen? And then... Cain was exiled out of the, even out of that whole area. He was actually had to go into another area. Would she ever see him again? She's bereft of her boys. The mother of all living. Tough times. 
Sin brings sorrow and death and hurt and pain. You don't have to read many pages of the Bible to see murder and anger and jealousy and rage and pain and sorrow all became because of sin. You know, people today say, you know, ah, you know, uh, if God's God and, you know, there is a God, why is there all this pain in the world and all this hunger and all this disease and all these murders and all this stuff going on? Well, just tell me, hold on a minute. You know, uh, excuse me, I haven't heard you mention the devil. I mean, if you believe in God, is there not a devil too? Do you not realize that there was none of this before the devil came on the scene? You not realize at the end of the Bible when the devil's taken out of the scene, there's none of this again, ever again? It only comes in between those two areas where the devil's is. What are you blaming God for? Such a person as Satan, the devil, the evil one, that brought sin into this world. Of course, the devil wants to hide that fact, doesn't he? But then, remember God made the promise about our seed? See, in the midst of our punishment for sin, God gave her a promise about her seed. That from her seed would come one that one day would crush the head of this devil. <laughs> I'm sure she held on to that. Especially in those dark days when it didn't look like it. And now she's got no boys and they're gone. But God gave her a promise. Your seed, your seed shall crush his head. And she had Seth. She had Seth. And out of Seth came a godly line. You can trace it. Godly line. All was not lost. God's promise would come true. From that lineage would come the one that he promised from the mother of all living would crush the head of the serpent, that old devil, the evil one. And I'm sure she took great comfort and consolation in God's promise to her. And when Seth came along, what a boy he was. What a son he was. And he had a son, Enosh. And he was godly. He was godly. He worshipped God. And that must have given her great, great delight. You know, we love our grandchildren, don't we? Nothing pleases more to see our grandchildren following Christ, going after God. So there she was, the mother of all living. And we owe our existence to her. We should be forever grateful, <laughs> shouldn't we? Because we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for her the mother of all living, Eve. Amen? Amen? Now, I'm not going to tell you which one I'm going to do next, so you have to be here to hear, but it won't be tonight. It'll be next Sunday morning. We'll do another one. And some of the ones I mentioned will maybe not do, some of the ones I didn't mention we will do. But I can promise you there are some great, great women in the Bible. And sometimes it tells a lot about them, sometimes it doesn't tell as much. But what it does tell us is inspiring and encouraging. Amen?